0: This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici.
1: And I'm Dr. John Keenan.
0: We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we're going to be discussing a paper about using short-acting opioid agonist hydromorphone to treat opioid use disorder in hospitalized patients. How are you tonight, John?
1: I'm doing great, Sonia. I think I was telling you a little bit before we started the show, I'm spending this week trying to do some home improvement projects, which is always kind of somewhat disastrous. I'm a much better doctor than a home improvement guy. How about you?
0: I'm doing really well. Yeah, I kind of stay in my lane when it comes to home improvement projects and just leave it to the people who really uh, know what they're doing.
1: I guess I can't do it. So what's going on this weekend, addiction medicine for you, Sonia, in terms of new news?
0: Well, I've been reading some recent articles and editorials about involuntary or compulsory treatment for substance use disorder. So this means you get forced into treatment against your will, either as part of incarceration or forced into it in a drug court or hospitalized against your will. That's involuntary treatment. There was a very powerful opinion piece in the New York Times recently by a father describing his efforts to save his son, who was refusing treatment, and There was also a really nice piece in Stat News by Dr. Sarah Wakeman about this issue. So I read both of those in the same week, and they were just really interesting. I thought the most interesting part of Dr. Wakeman's article was that she pointed out that many of the treatments that are forced on patients involuntarily are bad treatments. So it's not the fact that they're involuntary, but it's that they're just no good. They're out of date. They're proven not to work. They're delivered by untrained people. And they leave the patients feeling traumatized by the treatment system as a whole. And then she pointed out that we have a ton of people who want treatment that does work, you know, evidence-based treatment, who want it and they can't get it and it's not available. So I'm just going to quote her here since she says it so well. She says, the evidence is quite clear that addiction is a treatable health condition and what works is voluntary, welcoming, low-barrier treatment that includes a range of options based on science, delivered with compassion and centered on and driven by patients. So John, have you had patients talk to you about their experiences being forced into treatment?
1: Um, I think not so much recently. I've heard people get like the, I guess the intervention by family and not really being ready for treatment. I think it, this really goes back to that people, especially like people with kind of addiction, they really prioritize an individual recovery plan that meets their needs and, and their current barriers and where they're at. So I think in just anything as a, as a family doctor, almost nothing forced upon someone or like a hard stance really works. So this doesn't really surprise me that kind of forced treatment, it really doesn't work, especially when you're using kind of like last year's model car or like outdated treatment models to kind of meet these people where they're at. It's it's really not that surprising to me. How about you?
0: Yeah, it's not that surprising to me too. I think the only reason that anybody ever finds compulsory treatment kind of compelling is that people who are in the grips of a serious addiction sometimes are not in their right minds. And it's very painful to watch them just suffer and do poorly and risk their lives, especially if it's someone you love, and they won't go into treatment. Even treatment that everybody knows will help them. And so I think if you're on that side of it, you do wish that you could force your loved one into treatment. And I think that's what everybody wants to do. On the other side, those forced treatments, like Dr. Wakeman pointed out, don't really work that well. So while you want to do something doing something that isn't going to work doesn't really help the person.
1: You know, that was one thing from like ASAM that I took away, that when we had those kind of talks about like the medical-legal I was really kind of surprised because we're in Pennsylvania, I'm very familiar with like Pennsylvania laws, how variable the idea of capacity comes into play with substance use disorder, where like where we currently practice incapacitation, um, or lacking capacity for medical decision making or forced treatment really isn't an option uh, in almost any scenario unless the person is like has a concordant psychiatric illness, or they're a danger to themselves or others. But it sounds like in other states that maybe is not the case as often. And so I thought that was interesting that there's like a discrepancy there.
0: Yeah, you don't even notice it. You don't even know that it exists. So you talk to people from other states. So, John, what about you? Anything you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I had
1: kind of an interesting article. This is for kind of the lay media press. It was from the Texas Tribune. Um, And basically, it was once again kind of talking about uh, Juul Laboratories. So we all know Juul. They make the uh, vape or the e-cigarette that has kind of been very popular over the years. And this was talking about how they just recently settled another big payout of $462 million. Um, and this was across six states over eight years. And that included uh, New York, California, D.C., Illinois, Massachusetts, New Mexico. And it's for the marketing of their product to minors. Many people are aware that a lot of the original flavors, they were somewhat aimed towards a younger demographic. I actually kind of pulled up because i you have to forgive me. I don't know Juul uh, e-cigarettes. I've never smoked one. Uh, but some of the banned flavors include cucumber, mango, cream, fruit. So definitely things that you wouldn't think is classical uh, nicotine flavors. And I didn't realize how much they paid out over the years for this. This is not their first big payout. You know, they've already had a, a payout before over a billion dollars for over multiple lawsuits that were both private and state run uh, government institutions. So they've really paid out a lot in, in kind of legality over the years for this. What do you think about the use of these products? And have you seen them curtail at all since this 2019 where they pulled out these kind of more adolescent uh, aimed flavors?
0: Well, first off, I feel like Juul is your arch nemesis and you're just kind of happy that they had to pay out another however many billion dollars. Didn't last time we look at it, didn't we didn't we look online and they said that Juul was a smoking cessation tool for adult smokers? Wasn't that their party line? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't use... Cigarettes, so I I can't tell you. I'd have to ask my kids if people still use jewel at the local high school. I think I saw a jewel in the office today. Actually, I think a patient had it with her, so they're not out of business yet.
1: You know, I do have a couple of patients where I walk in the room and they're Juuling in the in the exam room before I walk in, and they I have to remind them that like they can't do that as well. So I don't know. You, people don't view it like like some people really don't view it like a cigarette, but it certainly is kind of uh, annoyance to other people around you at the very least. And I do think it's a good thing that we're kind of narrowing down some of these more targeted adolescent interventions to kind of capture the next generation of smokers. We've really done a good job in the United States about decreasing tobacco use as a whole. And I think that when you start doing things like uh, creme brulee flavored jewel pods or, or mango flavored or tutti frutti, I, I, that really is kind of marketed to kind of capture a currently not smoking population and possibly pull them into tobacco use.
0: Well, that's the thing. There is no reason to get teenagers and kids addicted to nicotine products. It's just, it's wrong. It's immoral. You know, I have no problem with anyone who wants to use an e-cigarette, especially as part of quitting smoking, but to purposefully market to kids to get them addicted to what is a lifelong. And if you switch to cigarettes, a potentially fatal habit is just It's just evil. They should go out of business. You know, that's my bottom line.
1: They're your nemesis too, apparently.
0: (laughs) Now, I'm going to let them be your nemesis. I have a different nemesis. I'll uh, tell our listeners about it next time. Okay. So, John, do you want to tell us about this article?
1: Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting article, and I think it kind of challenges some of the ways that we typically think about treating patients in the hospital with opioid use disorder that are a little bit more difficult to treat. So, the article is called Safety and Preliminary Outcomes of Short-Acting Opioid Agonist Therapy, and they call that SOAT for hospitalized patients with opioid use disorder. And it's from Addiction Science and Clinical Practice, February, 2023. So a little bit of background, um, there are over 180,000 opioid related hospitalizations costing more than $2.2 billion in the US each year. 20 to 30% of patients who inject drugs leave the hospital as patient directed discharges. And this is kind of the more friendly term for what we previously called against medical advice. Patient-directed discharges are associated with a doubling of 30-day mortality, increased rehospitalization, and higher healthcare utilization. Patients with opioid use disorder report that the two most common reasons for patient-directed discharge are untreated withdrawal and untreated pain. Current evidence-based standard of care for patients admitted to the hospital with opioid use disorder is to discharge these patients on medications for opioid use disorder. Yet less than 15% of these patients actually receive these treatments, and they can be life-saving in many cases. Current barriers to initiation of medications for opioid use disorder in the hospital include the days-to-weeks timetable that it takes to achieve steady-state therapeutic drug levels, to treat both cravings and withdrawal from methadone. So it has a very long half-life to hit targeting levels. It takes a long time. And then in terms of buprenorphine, it's fear of precipitated withdrawal. Based upon several case reports from the British Columbia, some experts have proposed an alternative approach to treating hospitalized patients with opioid use disorder using a combination of short-acting opioids and traditional opioids for the treatment of opioid use disorder. What do you think about that?
0: It's a really interesting article. It made me think of something that an attending told me when I was in training and I've tried to share with my residents, which is that some people don't want to stop using their opioids, especially their illicit opioids. You know, you'd think everyone would want to stop, but a lot of hospitalized patients are in the hospital only because they have to be. They're really sick. They have no choice and they really have no interest in stopping their opioids. They plan to continue them as soon as they leave. They're not interested in treatment, even if we offer it. And if you can't keep them comfortable in the hospital, then they're just going to leave early, not receive gold standard care, and potentially get sick and die or have to come back. So you can't force people to stop using their opiates while they're in the hospital. I mean, you can not offer any to them, but you can't, you're not going to make them better by trying to force them to stop using opiates. You know, a week in the hospital is not going to change their minds if that's what they want. So doing something to keep them in the hospital, keep them comfortable, treat them appropriately, so that they can get treated for whatever they're in for, I think is a great idea.
1: Okay. So what is the clinical question here? It has two clinical questions. One is, is the treatment of hospitalized patients with opioid use disorder using short-acting opioid agonist therapy, is it safe? And does treating hospitalized patients with this disorder using short-acting opioid agonist therapy improve retention and treatment? So is it safe? And do they stay in the hospital to receive their necessary care? So a little about this. This is a study design. It's a case series of 23 high-risk patients with opioid use disorder admitted to the University of Pennsylvania Medical Center from August 2021 to March 2022. Selection was non-random. So basically what happened is, is when a patient was admitted with opioid use disorder and they kind of met criteria that they were high risk for patient-directed discharge, or if the admitting team felt that they were uncomfortable treating the patient's pain requiring the pain team to assist, they could be selected into this trial, but it was non-random. So they intentionally selected the patients that were kind of the sickest in terms of their opioid use disorder and the highest risk patients of leaving the hospital. And what they did is they placed a consult to pharmacy who does both pain management, but also opioid withdrawal management. A little bit about the protocol intervention. So all patients were offered in-house buprenorphine or methadone. So they could accept or decline the standard of care medications for opioid use disorder. They also received scheduled oral oxycodone or hydromorphone every four hours, and they would hold if they were sedated. So they did sedation scales. Uh, that The nursing staff would administer these throughout the uh, hospitalization. Breakthrough IV hydromorphine was added as needed. Based upon clinical context, standing oral and breakthrough IV medications were escalated by the pharmacist every four to 12 hours for the first one to three days until the patient reports relief or tolerability of pain and withdrawal. As a last resort, if the patient did not respond to this protocol, they were offered a hydromorphone PCA. For patients declining to transition to buprenorphine or methadone at discharge, a shared decision-making strategy was employed to determine whether or not the patient would receive a short opioid taper or abrupt discontinuation of their opioids at the time of discharge. One thing to say here about this protocol, one is there was no addiction medicine consult service. So this was basically a pain management pharmacist that was kind of the expert here determining kind of drug changes and interventions all patients were also offered non-opioid adjunct pain medications. So things that we would typically think of like and NSAIDs, Tylenol, if appropriate. Another point that I wanted to bring up is, you know, they talk about kind of discontinuation of the opioids. They didn't just kind of abruptly discontinue opioids at the time of discharge if the patient declined to transition to methadone kind of lightheartedly. The, the thinking behind that was that patients that are kind of abruptly leaving at discharge or patient-directed discharges, they're probably going to Return to drug use. The thought was that theoretically, if you taper this patient, uh, you actually decrease their tolerance and actually increase their risk of subsequent overdose. The primary outcomes were classified as sentinel safety events. So that included administration of naloxone over sedation, and that was measured by the Richmond agitation sedation scale less than negative three or equal to that, or the Pacero opioid induced sedation scale greater than or equal to three, or a fall. So those were the three safety events. Secondary outcomes were related to treatment retention, so patient-directed discharges, discharges on methadone or buprenorphine maintenance therapy, length of stay for patients that did do a patient-directed discharge, patients discharged that actually took naloxone with them. And it was interesting, all of these secondary outcomes about treatment retention, they compared the patients to themselves during previous admissions. So they went through the EMR And they would collect data as to how many times the patients previously were admitted for a medical complication of opioid use disorder, how often they stayed, how often they engaged in treatment. So they kind of acted as their own control based upon their history. They also did exploratory outcomes with daily pain using our classic 1 to 10 pain scale. Clinical opioid withdrawal scale, the CALS, was also used. Statistical analysis was done with descriptive statistics to characterize the data for analysis. So, do you have any questions about the study itself or the protocol, Sonia?
0: No questions. I think you explained it well. I mean, it's a true harm reduction study. They're basically doing whatever patients need in terms of opiates that the patients want. They were offered methadone, offered buprenorphine, and if they didn't want either of those, they were kept as comfortable as they could be on short acting opiates, all the way up to hydromorphone PCA, which you know, we might think of as an anathema for a patient with opioid use disorder. So it, it just, it's a great protocol, a little bit labor intensive hearing about it. So, you know, I'll be interested to hear how it turned out.
1: Yeah, I chose this article because I, I the protocol was interesting to me because um, it really kind of rubs you with everything you were kind of told not to do in terms of residency and kind of training to date. I feel like these are all the things we tried to avoid, or at least I was told to avoid by previous kind of attendings and teachers throughout my two residencies. And it's interesting, it just it's different, right? So it's basically judicious use of opioids, not stringent use of this opioids in this higher risk patients. But a dilaudid PCA to a patient with opioid use disorder, that just is a surprising different take on how to treat these patients. So I was really interested to see How kind of like taking the enantiomer approach, how was this going to actually work out?
0: Well, and of course, if you accept a harm reduction approach, this is in some ways the obvious way to treat people. Like again, nobody decides to give up drugs. They don't like see the light just because some intern in the hospital made them miserable for three days and then they had to leave early because they had such terrible withdrawal.
1: Yeah, definitely. So is this valid? The study was funded by a research grant from the Research and Addiction Medicine Scholars Program. The authors had no disclosures. Um, It was a small case series, so it was only 23 high-risk cases at a single institution. There was no control group, but although I said for the secondary outcomes, they kind of acted as their own control group based upon how they acted historically uh, themselves as patients. Subject selection was non-randomized and intentional. I actually think this is the opposite of what we see with most clinical trials, especially like, you know, pharmacy study or pharmacy funded trials. They actually kind of cherry pick the most difficult cases, not cherry picking the easy cases. So this may not be generalizable to our patients with like a mild to moderate opioid use disorder since these patients seem to be on the more severe spectrum also with kind of polysubstance use disorder.
0: I, can I just add, it's, you know, cherry picking those patients who are the sickest, you might think it's, it's kind of weird. But of course, we see that with our other clinical trials as well, because those are the patients who have the highest event rate. So if you tried to do this study in people with mild or moderate opioid use disorder, you probably wouldn't see much of a difference, you know with or without the protocol. So these are the patients who would have the highest risk of a negative outcome or an adverse event. And so you have the greatest chance of seeing a difference with your protocols. So I think picking these patients was really, um, I mean, it, I think that gives them the biggest chance of showing that they've made a difference.
1: Great point. The subjects lacked uh, racial and ethnic diversity. So 95.7% identified as being white. This kind of comes up repeatedly kind of in all the trials, also just in the uh, addiction medicine research in general. This really kind of reflects a systemic bias in treatment. We know that kind of patients of color or other ethnicities, they have opioid use disorder at the same rate as white patients. However, white patients are much more likely to be linked into treatment and receive care as opposed to people that are non-white. So it's kind of a known bias. Data collected from prior hospitalizations only reflected data that could be captured from the health system using the same EMR as the intervention site. So basically, you know, if your EMR shared information, they could see that if you were on a freestanding EMR, as not all hospitals do communicate, you would miss additional hospitalizations in terms of the previous cases in the past 12 months. The protocol was very labor intensive for nursing staff, which the authors feel like it could limit uh, generalizability. Uh, you know, Q4-hour assessments in addition to as-needed administrations of hydromorphone, that was very nursing intensive. So they had to work very hard to kind of fulfill this protocol. Polysubstance abuse was very common, or polysubstance use was common. 60.9% of patients in the trial also used benzodiazepines on a regular basis, and they met the criteria for benzodiazepine use disorder. 73.9% met the criteria for cocaine use disorder. And 78.3% met the criteria for tobacco use disorder. And you know, they couldn't really statistically adjudicate the contributions of them to the protocol success or failures. So, like for example, was a patient directed discharge due to untreated opioid use disorder and withdrawal, or was it due to untreated benzodiazepine use or, or cocaine use? Um, so that kind of muddles the pot a little bit as to why the patients left the hospital it would have been nice to have like a in a perfect world when a patient was leaving the hospital against medical advice or patient directed discharge if they had a survey as to why they were leaving they could give some kind of like an exit interview as to their experience authors self-critique that the patient experience was not captured by this trial so you know i think they added a lot i wouldn't be too hard on yourself authors i think this was actually a really good start i think some like I said before, maybe some exit interview. That'd be interesting. Um, I don't think it necessarily limits the trial, though.
0: You don't think we got Prescani scores after these hospitalizations?
1: I'm sure someone did. Five stars? I think it's just the discharging physician that gets the Prescani, though.
0: Not this amazing pain pharmacist, whoever he was?
1: So, the, yeah, so they didn't get it, and the whole experience wasn't captured. Sorry, ganey, if you're listening. So what are the results? Out of 29 selected cases, 23 cases actually started the protocol. So six could not meet inclusion. They didn't actually kind of get to the protocol start. As I said before, here's the characteristics of the case predominantly female, so 13 out of 26 were female, uh, 21 out of 23 were white, Medicaid insured was 21 out of 23, unstably housed, 14 out of 23. Which I think is interesting if this group really was kind of unstably housed or homeless, it's probably that they're they're going to the same hospitals for care repeatedly as opposed to traveling like a large geographic distance. That might make the data capture from previous hospitalizations actually somewhat better. They had coexisting mental health diagnosis in 12 out of 23 cases, mostly depression and anxiety. Co-occurring substance use disorder was common, 14 out of 23 benzodiazepine use disorder, 13 out of 23 cocaine use disorder, and 18 out of 23 tobacco use disorder. Very, very high baseline drug consumption. So only nine of the 23 used less than one bundle per day. And one bundle is 14 bags of basically heroin, fentanyl combination. So that's quite a bit. And that was the lower third of the patients were in that. Everyone else was more than a bundle. Fentanyl detection was incredibly common. 19 out of 23 patients tested positive for fentanyl. Previous patient-directed discharge was common. So 13 out of 23, which is more than half, had a patient-directed discharge in the past year. 19 out of 23 were not enrolled in medication for opioid use disorder treatment on admission. So that's 82.6%, which is kind of sad because this group has touched the healthcare system so many times where they could have received treatment. The admission diagnoses were serious. So this wasn't people that came to the hospital with kind of like, you know, mechanical back pain. This was all kind of injection drug-related complications. So osteomyelitis, discitis, bacteremia, endocarditis, septic arthritis, epidural abscess, empyema, So these are all like life-threatening medical conditions on their own that really kind of even with optimal treatment, outcomes are not always great for some of these. So it's really important to kind of engage this group particularly.
0: Just hearing about the demographics of the people in the study gives me the chills as a doctor. You just think, oh, gosh, this person with, you know, doesn't have a home injecting more than a bundle of heroin a day, also with benzodiazepine and cocaine use, now with osteomyelitis in the hospital. You just think, oh, this is not going to go well for this poor person.
1: Yeah, these are sad cases. So um, a little bit of the details of the intervention itself. So the median morphine equivalents prior to starting the protocol was 29. So that means that 29 morphine equivalents per day was kind of before you got into the program. So that's a pretty low amount probably uh, more uh, reflective of a patient without opioid use disorder. And this probably also reflects how healthcare systems treat these patients typically. On day one of patients in this protocol, the median morphine equivalent was 200. On day two, it was 276. On day three, it was 320. So those are relatively large doses. 14 out of 23 patients at 61% received the oral oxycodone and almost 40%, 9 out of 23, received the oral hydromorphone as the baseline opioid. 9 out of 23, so 39.1%, got breakthrough IV hydromorphone throughout their hospitalization. Uh, 12 out of 23, which is a little over half, 52.2%, were started on methadone between day one and day three. So they did elect to uh, enroll in medication for opioid use disorder treatment. 17 out of 23, which is 73.9%, were tapered off opioids prior to DC with 6 out of 23, which was 26.1% abruptly discontinuing opioids. And these were all patient-directed discharges. So essentially, the tapered patients were transitioned to care, and the patients that were abruptly discontinued were patient-directed discharges. they didn't want to stay in the hospital for a short taper. 14 out of 23, which is 60.9% were transitioned to methadone and two out of 23, 8.7% were transitioned to buprenorphine on discharge. So overall about 70% were plugged into treatment at discharge, which I think is pretty amazing. So primary outcomes. So in terms of those sentinel safety events, in terms of administration of naloxone, one out of 23 patients, which is 4.3% were charted as receiving naloxone. Interestingly, there's like a big asterisk here because no one really knows that the patient actually received naloxone. So it looks like when they looked through the EMR, it was documented that the patient received naloxone while they were down the OR. However, there was no documentation in terms of an event or a physician or nurse that said an indication or that the patient actually did truly receive the naloxone. So I think anyone that works at a healthcare system knows that when a patient goes to like from the ER to the floor or the floor to the OR or the OR to PACU, it's really weird because a lot of times the order sets are kind of canceled out or kind of like completed and a new order set is transitioned while another one is held. So they think that this actually might have reflected more of an EMR error than a true naloxone administration. Over sedation, one out of 23, which is 4.3% did meet criteria for over-sedation by one of the sedation scales. Interestingly, the patient was not receiving opioids just as part of the protocol. The patient was found to have syringes in his room, so he was administering IV um, opioids that he brought in with him while during the hospitalization in addition to what he was receiving as part of the protocol. There were zero falls, which is awesome. In terms of secondary outcomes, so this is all about treatment retention, and it compared 42 admissions over the previous 12 months In terms of patient-directed discharges, 43.5% of hospitalizations were patient-directed discharges in the protocol, compared to 29 out of 42, which is 69% in the same population in the previous 12 months. So the same population was about 50% more likely to not have a patient-directed discharge in this protocol than before. Discharges on methadone or buprenorphine maintenance therapy 65.2% of patients in this protocol went home on some sort of a medication for opioid use disorder treatment, as opposed to only 14 out of 42, which is 33.3% of the previous hospitalizations, resulted in the patient being discharged on a medication for opioid use disorder treatment. When a patient did leave, patient directed discharge, they stayed for an average of five days, as opposed to in previous hospitalizations, they would only stay for three days before leaving a patient directed discharge. In terms of patients discharged with naloxone, 15 out of 23 went home with naloxone, so that's 65.2%, versus 8 out of 42, which is 19% from the previous hospitalizations. So basically, the short answer here is that this, this protocol appears very safe, really no true known safety events if a patient was using just the protocol. And in terms of treatment retention, much more likely to stay in the hospital, not leave patient-directed discharge. If they do leave patient-directed discharge, they still got more days of treatment in this protocol. They were more likely to leave the hospital with naloxone, and they were also much more likely to leave the hospital linked into buprenorphine or methadone maintenance as treatment. So all kind of win-win-wins. In terms of the exploratory outcomes, I thought this was interesting. The median daily pain score was high. These patients, no matter what you gave them, they were in pain throughout this hospitalization. The range was 6 to 8 out of that 10-point scale on day 1, 7 to 8 on day 2, and 5 to 8 on day 3. So even with all these opioids, pain was still reportedly poorly controlled. In terms of the CAL score, basically eight to three on day one was the range and four to two on day three. So it seems like they captured symptoms of withdrawal relatively well. What did you think of all that, Sonia, and those results?
0: I thought the results were super awesome. I mean, I really like how even though they had the option of just staying on short-acting opioids, including hydromorphone, two-thirds of the patients chose to transition to buprenorphine or methadone, which is amazing. I mean, I think in our hospital system, people... kind of given a choice no opiates or buprenorphine those are your two choices so a lot of people choose buprenorphine but here you had a choice and people still chose buprenorphine or methadone so it shows that people really want to get into treatment i thought that was an awesome outcome i was glad it was safe i was sorry people's pain didn't get better but i think that just speaks to the amazing amount of pain you have with the hyperalgesia that comes from long-term high-dose opioid use especially illicit opioid use so no i thought it was a great study i like the results
1: yeah, and one thing I wanted to mention, though, you brought the, the pain. The protocol is designed off of these case reports from uh, British Columbia. And just to give you an idea, we talked about the median morphine equivalence in this trial from day one to three. It was like 200 to 320 was the median. That trial from British Columbia, where you know they found that this protocol worked, they were doing three thousand morphine equivalents per day, so much much higher doses in the basically the classical case uh, studies that they were trying to base this off of. So the question is, maybe was that not the sweet spot? Maybe did you have to go higher for pain control? I'm not sure, but you're right. The hyperalgesia is really difficult.
0: Well, right. I mean, what's the morphine mill equivalents of a bundle of heroin from the Philadelphia area? you know, I mean, that's like 2,000 micrograms of fentanyl per bag and it's 10 plus bags people are using a day. And I mean, it's just like, you can't even compare. I mean, it's hard to imagine what you could give pharmaceutically that would equal what people are using illicitly.
1: Yeah. So I kind of have to wrap up here, will the results help me in patient care? And I think that, um, uh, some of the listeners know, we do a live journal club before we do this kind of recording. And often it's kind of nice because you have to talk things out. And sometimes I really like to share with each other and kind of change perspective. And I'm actually going to change my my answer for this one. Um, so uh, initially, I really put that I thought this was very interesting, this trial, but it really um, wasn't probably going to change how I do patient care, mostly because I don't have a, um, a protocol like this at my institution. Although, I think actually it probably will. And and while I don't have an opioid use protocol like this for opioid agonists to treat patients with opioid use disorder, I think that what I took away from it is that I'm really going to stop fretting about giving opioids to people in the hospital with an appropriate indication, regardless of opioid use disorder diagnosis. I think that people like septic arthritis, epidural abscess, osteomyelitis, these are painful conditions. Um, I think sometimes we worry that we're going to kind of do harm by giving them more opioids or giving them a dilated PCA. But I think that this trial would show that you, you really aren't. If anything, you're just kind of engaging them in care and you're allowing them to stay for the life-saving treatment they need. So I think if anything, I'm going to probably be a little more liberal and sleep a little easier about giving these typical patients pain control medications to both keep them in the hospital and to keep them engaged in their treatment and not worry that I'm going to harm them.
0: I think that's a great point. Here, let me ask you a question. I got asked by one of my colleagues to review some cases that they're writing for our simulation center for our residents, and it includes a case of a patient with opiate use disorder who is on methadone but also requiring additional analgesia after a surgery. And the case is about what would you recommend for this patient to help them with their pain control, and I'm thinking I should put Dilaudid PCA as a uh, the treatment of choice here because you know, as you said, it's sort of anathema to our previous treatment, but I think the authors of this article pointed out, you know, letting the patients have a PCA eliminates that antagonistic relationship between patient and nurse. And the patient doesn't have to feel as frustrated that the nurse is kind of not delivering the medication as quickly as they want. The nurse doesn't have to worry herself that she's giving someone medication that maybe they shouldn't have. And so, you know, using a PCA, not being so stingy with the opiates in someone who has a high tolerance for opioids really didn't seem to hurt anybody in this study and kept them in the hospital longer. So what do you think? Should I put a lot of PCA as choice number one for our patient on methadone who also needs analgesia?
1: I, I think it's not unreasonable, right? He probably has a very high tolerance
0: that's right. Maybe I'll sneak it in and see if the residents notice.
1: It is sad because, you know, and I feel like more, more and more, especially like with the appropriate indication, like these are, these were terrible diagnoses. Like, you know, I think most of us that kind of work at ever worked in a city hospital, like, you know, endocarditis, epidural abscess, a, a patient walking out the hospital with a patient directed discharge of one of these conditions. I mean, I think anything we can do not to do that is, is really the right thing, no matter what it is, because, they're disastrous when they turn out the wrong way, They're and they're terrible.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you for presenting that article, John. I thought that was really awesome.
1: Thanks for the discussion.
0: So I wanted to do our talkback section. We got a bunch of comments about our article in episode 20, which was about using as-needed naltrexone for alcohol use disorder. And I wanted to read one for this episode of the podcast. So this comment is from Dr. Santos, who was actually the lead author of the article that we profiled. He sent us an email And he said, thank you very much for profiling our paper on your podcast. I very much appreciate your thoughtful analysis of our study. Additionally, it was helpful for me to hear your thoughts around the missed opportunity for us to assess the intervention effects on other alcohol-associated consequences. We will endeavor to include these outcomes in our subsequent work. Thank you for the terrific suggestions. By the way, I think it's delightful that this podcast on substance use disorders exists. I learned a lot just by tuning into the first few minutes of this episode, including the very encouraging news about the opioid overdose data. I hope we see even more reductions in overdoses with the FDA approval of naloxone over-the-counter sales. Thank you, Addiction Medicine Journal Club, for covering these topics. Keep up your great work. It was just such a nice email. I had to read it and share it with our listeners. So thank you, Dr. Santos, for your work and for giving us some feedback. We also had some listeners comment on social media to say that they personally had used as-needed naltrexone successfully to help them give up alcohol. And I don't want to share anything specific because that's their stories to tell, but just to say it was excellent to hear that other people have used this technique, not because of our podcast, but have used it in the past. So great work, everyone out there. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, send us your comments on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, email, or join our Facebook group. The links are in the show notes. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Aaron McHugh, video production by Spencer Kennedy, produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Have a great day.